1: This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Today is a conversation about a life in Zen training. My guest in this episode is Corey Hess, I got connected to Corey through a mutual friend, Maito Moore, abbot of Karinji Monastery in Wisconsin. Mato Roshi consistently shares links from Corey's fantastic blog, Zen Embodiment, and I noticed Corey posting regular comments and links on a Facebook group about Zen practice in the United States. I started reading the Zen Embodiment blog too, and found it to be unique and interesting. Corey's blog creatively and poetically talks about his Zen experience in Japan and the United States and encourages others to dive in to their own unique inner process of embodiment and awakening. Corey's blog brings Zen off the cushion and into society, into parenting, into being married, into the professional world, and into his direct work of helping people in his body therapy work doing structural integration, meditation instruction, source point, and craniosacral therapy. You can read his blog about Zen practice at www.zenembodiment.com and you can find Corey's professional work for body therapy at www.coreyhassbodytherapy.com Today's conversation with Corey is essentially a three-part conversation. The first part is Corey's backstory for how he found Zen after growing up in Michigan. The second part of our conversation is about his experience living in the Sogenji Zen Monastery in Okayama, Japan, where he was ordained a Zen monk and given the name Ichigen. The third part is about Corey's post-monastery life, his work, his family, and his writing. A large portion of our conversation today refers to documentary film footage shot by the Japanese national television network NHK, which is sort of comparable to the UK's BBC. Over the course of a year at Sogenji, Corey is featured prominently in the 45-minute documentary, which you can find on his blog, on YouTube, and at the links provided in the show notes. After listening to this conversation... I highly recommend you watch the footage as a complimentary experience to listening to this conversation, because Corey's explanations over what happens in the film will greatly enhance your understanding as you watch. A large component of what I did to prepare for this conversation is to watch Corey's life in the footage and write questions about practices, daily routines, the social life among the monastics, and more. While you can enjoy the conversation without watching the footage, you will see the full splendor of Zen training by watching it. You can consider this conversation akin to watching a movie on DVD with the director's commentary turned on. That said, you do not need to watch the footage in order to enjoy this wide-ranging conversation about Corey's life at Segenji. I love the far-reaching nature of this conversation, And I'm grateful to Corey for answering questions about monastic life in extremely minute detail. Please follow the links in the show notes to find Corey's work and contact information. I know he'd love to hear from you. From about minute 43 to minute 47, I run into a little bit of a snag with the sound quality. I apologize. Lastly, stay tuned after the conversation for Corey's inclusion of a full chanting, of the English version of the Heart Sutra. Please enjoy my conversation with Corey Ichigen-S. Corey, thank you so much for coming on the show.
0: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
1: Can you spend a moment and just introduce yourself a little bit to the audience? I know we're going to talk about a lot of your story today, but just kind of like who you are and what you do.
0: Well... Um... I'm a former Zen monk, Rinzai Zen monk, and I spent pretty much all my 20s really deeply involved in Rinzai Zen in Japan and in the States. These days, I'm kind of just a dad. Um, I have three daughters, and I also am a a body therapist. I do structural integration and a few other modalities. Yep.
1: Cool. Where did you grow up? I grew up, I'm a
0: Midwestern boy, I grew up in Michigan, Um, out in the woods, I didn't have any neighbors for about a quarter mile, and so I spent a lot of time out in the woods kind of investigating, you know, I think I was an early early person to really want to investigate what's real and all that in life.
1: Awesome. Did you have any sort of like spiritual tradition growing up or any connection to any like traditions at all in your family?
0: We went to the local, you know, Baptist church, but I think I was really craving a lot of that from an early age and we weren't that really wasn't a part of our lives in in a big way. So I was I had I came in craving something deeper.
1: Okay. So what would you say would be sort of like your first introduction to Buddhism in general? Because I know your life really went in that direction. Where did you first come into contact with like the teachings of the Buddha, um Zen, and things like that?
0: Well, uh I think I had read, you know, Buddhism books um in the public library or or whatnot. But I think I saw one book one time, um, in the in the library and it was i think it was actually one of these really great books where they show the japanese monastery and you, i saw the monks and I like, think they were you know all laying in a line sleeping you know and i was just um totally blown away by some, if nothing else just the aesthetic of it was very powerful i think it really hit me in a certain way i didn't really understand
1: Mm -hmm. Do you think it's like the mountains and the robes and the shaved heads? Like, what do you think it was about it that really drew you in? It was
0: something very Spartan and very pure and, um, not necessarily morally pure, but just something very, um, very kind of penetrating and sharp about it. Um, you know, I, you know, honestly, I was, I grew up with Star Wars, you know, I was looking to figure out how to be a Jedi or something in my life. So. I think it was I, I really was uh, looking for some kind of training of you know to be able to explore deeply what's what what it is that's moving around what it is that's um, existing in space and that so I, I think that there was a training aspect you know I used to watch all these kung fu movies you know as a kid, so I was looking for some kind of deep trainings
1: mm hmm How old were you when you think that you established, like, an actual practice in Buddhism?
0: Well, I I don't think I really had a really, you know, real practice until I went to Japan. I think I I was, um, I had sat a few different O sessions, Mm -hmm. and I think I had, um, you know, I'd been at the the little monastery on Whidbey Island where I live, there was a little monastery called Tahoma One Drop. And uh, I had been there and I'd been sitting for a while, but, you know, to really get a really deep, you know, start to really investigate this practice takes, for me, it took a long time to even just to be able to sit there and be comfortable and um, really engage with it. So Japan, I, you know, you're just thrown into the fire there. Right. So, you know.
1: So you went to a monastery, so Genji, in your your 20s, right? Yep. Yep. How how old were you when you went? Do you specifically remember?
0: I think I was 23.
1: Okay, so what was your life like from maybe like your early 20s, like 20 to 23? Like what was that point like leading you to the monastery? Because I think that's a really interesting process that a lot of people might be interested to hear about.
0: Yeah, I think I was... uh looking for a way to you know offer myself to the world and I was really an intense person. Uh, pretty you know artistic and pretty gifted with some athletics and physical. But there was some aspect of me that was kind of wound tight and uh, I felt like there was you know there are different parts of myself so were' not working together. I felt like I was going in a few different directions. Um, as a 20 year old and, um, and, and so we were wild and crazy. I went to school in Missoula, Montana. We were kind of like trying to be Jack Kerouac and trying to figure out how to, you know, be wild and crazy artists and, um, live life to the fullest. But there was this part of me that really craved some kind of intense, uh, training of, of some kind. Um, and, but then I got, I got this, uh, I got injured. When I was in, in – I think I was a little bit after. No, I'm not sure what time that was, but I got injured, and I had this whole physical problem with my hip. And um, through that, I realized through s- some different um, uh, energetic practices that, oh, I have to really work on this for, uh, in a deep way for a long time to, to sort myself out. And so I went looking for a way to do that, and that's when I you know really started to look for the Roshi. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an energetic master. Okay. So you his way of working is, is basically energetic. Um, so I, I was going in a few different directions and I, I wanted to find a way to somehow work with that.
1: Okay. So you, did you meet the, is the Roshi, uh, was he attached to Sogenji and the monastery on the island that you're in? So the,
0: the Roshi is, um, the abbot of the the monastery in Japan, Sogenji, and there's a little satellite monastery from that one here. And there's a bunch around, there's a few around the world actually that he's, so he's the man, right? And then there are these little, little kind of one drops, kind of drops of water around. And, um, first I went to, um, uh, first I came out from Missoula. I came out to, um, uh, all the way out here to Whidbey. And I came and I visited and there was a head monk here and, um, I expected to find someone very nice and gentle and instead he was sort of this, um, handsome, sharp kind of arrogant guy who kind of just pushed, <laughs> pushed my buttons like crazy. I said, I'm getting the hell out of here. You know, I, I don't want to be involved in this. I'm, um, I just want to be like a cool guy and, you know, chase girls and happy. And, um, And, and, and so, but it really hit me. It kind of like stung me. And so I left and I went traveling around and, um, and I was in places like Cuba and and I was in Cuba. Why am I not happy? And I realized, oh, it's my, my internal world has to be sorted out. So it doesn't matter where I am if my internal world is, uh, uh, uneasy. So I went back, um, somehow after my, uh, you know departure yeah <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, mess you know anyway, I went back and uh, uh there was a mon there was a an o session happening at the monastery on Whitby here, and the Roshi was here, and somehow he invited me to um go to tea somehow, maybe he heard about this weird guy <laughs> that visited you know, and um the Roshi's looking for his looking for his new you know um wild characters to, to mold. You yeah. Know? So, so he, he invited me to tea and I, I went in and um, I couldn't believe it. He was, it was just like meeting, you know, Yoda. Okay. He hmm. was, he was moving from this place, which I completely could not grasp physically. He was so physically present and his, it was like he was so grounded in this way that I, I couldn't even imagine. It just completely blew me away. And so, you know, he would, he was just looking right through me. I would talk to him and he, he had, he completely had me, you know, I was like a pawn in that room full of, with this master, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, so I said, you know, I said, well, why would a person like me go to, go to train in Japan? And, uh, in his, you know, indescribably deep voice, he says, "Ooh." (laughs) What do you think you know what do you think <laughs> and I said, well, uh well, it depends on the person, you know and um and he says, you know he says, no, it's to realize why you were born hmm. and i i I didn't really have i had nothing I couldn't do anything with that I had zero understanding and um and that so that shook me up. And then I stayed, he let me stay for the rest of the four days. There was, it was a seven day old session. He let me stay for the rest of the four days. And I sat in one of these knee chairs,
1: you mm-hmm. know, yeah.
0: I was just suffering, you know, just this like ball of like key confusion and pain, you know, and, and then on the last evening I, I, I had this, you know, opening and it was like time stopped and you know it was a really big carrot for me It was a carrot to show me oh this is possible with this and you know i could like read everybody's thoughts and um so you know people have stuff like that when they start you know and um for me it was it was a real wake up like oh this is a practice that i could really dive into Mm -hmm. okay um but then i left and i like i was on my brother's couch in seattle the next night you know like you know and, um, and, uh, but then, uh, oddly enough, a little bit later, I got to go as a chaperone for this group to Japan and I visited the monastery and they, they had a, they had me marked as a possible weirdo to go over there, you know? <laughs> so, so I went and it was really profound for me being with the Roshi and being in the monastery. And there's, there's always an aspect of like you're, you're kind of like, are these yuppies playing dress up? You know, mm-hmm. what is this? But then there's this other aspect where it's like, Oh, this is so it deeply affected me. I was going to the Roshi for, he, he allowed me to go for sanzen which is the, the private interview. Yeah. And uh, he just sizes you up, you know, and I just went in there and I just cried and it was very intense. And, um, and so it really hit me, you know, but, came back and I still just wanted to be a normal guy. I don't want to go do that training. That's crazy. You know? And then the, the then there was an O session again on the Island and day six was, uh, September 11th, nine eleven. Mm. And, and there were, so that one, that head monk I had talked about came into the, you know, day six, and day six, you're pretty raw as a new practitioner. Yeah. Anyway, he came in and, um, told us that the two planes had crashed, you know? So, um, It shook me up, and I realized, oh, I'm going now. Right. That's how I ended up going to Japan.
1: Oh, my goodness. Okay, so everything that you just described, so like going to Japan, people can actually see your experience in Japan because there is a film that exists that you posted on your website, Zen Embodiment that details your experience in, like, sort of like a day in the life in a monastery. And so, like, people can go to your website, and they can watch, like, 50 minutes of footage, basically from, like, the time of a wake-up until sleeping time, in a monastery, in Sogenji, Rinzai Zen Monastery, and you are in the film. So... (laughs) Ha, like, tell me about this film. Like, why was this? Why does this footage of this film exist that demonstrates the like a day in the life in the in this monastery?
0: Well, I think for the Japanese, they have a a particular uh, fascination with the foreigners who are there uh, training. I think in some ways for them, uh, Zen is is a little bit like uh, you know some form of Christianity here that people uh, feel like is kind of tired and old. And, um, maybe they've been there, done that. So they're, they're just shocked by the fact that we are, um, all these foreigners, these, you know, these really tall, strange, you know, foreigners, men and women are there, uh, training for, for almost decades, you know, years and decades. And so I think for the Japanese, they have this like, either it's this thing I don't care about, or it's so far and exotic, the training that normal people don't do that so training in Japan. It's, it's, it, they don't think it's possible. So the fact that we're doing it is pretty exciting and exotic for them.
1: Okay, so how long was this film crew in the monastery filming all this footage?
0: Yeah, they. Um, I think it was like a year that they came and went, came and went, and we got to know them pretty well. Uh, they were they were really sweet people, um, very sincere. Uh, yeah, so so through the film, it you it there's some time lapse, right? It's right. like it's winter and then it's spring or whatever, you know, and um and so that's a little confusing. And also, the film was never finished, so it's the editing is a little bit tricky. So. Uh, but yeah, and and also they kind of wanted pyrotechnics. They mm-hmm. wanted things to be um, kind of they they you know they didn't want to show um, anything that wasn't uh, you know kind of fascinating.
1: Right, they wanted action. Yeah,
0: action. Yep, yep.
1: Okay, yep. so in this film, you are in there a lot. So how old were you? Do you think when this film was made?
0: Um. I think I was about twenty seven, twenty-eight. Okay. Okay. So, so, maybe turned twenty eight during the during the film, yeah.
1: So is this about halfway into your stay in the monastery?
0: Yeah. How
1: yep. long how long were you there again?
0: Well, you know, that was all my twenties. So okay. after I went there, twenty three, that was it. You know, so I was just like um, there and then I was here a little bit at the monastery. So um, so yeah, it was like 30, 30 we were kinda out of there.
1: Okay, cool. So in the film, in the very beginning, it sort of shows like the morning wake-up routine in a Zen monastery. So people appear to be wearing very, very heavy coats inside. Uh, you can see their breath. like um, it's, it's, it's obviously very cold. And then early in the film, you are there, and you hit a giant bell with a wooden hammer. So what does this mean?
0: Well, that was—so the first thing we do is we go to Choka, and Choka is the chanting. So we do that for like an hour. Okay. So so you get up. Someone says, Kaijo. So you wake up. Someone yells, Kaijo. You get up. And then you go immediately to go chant. Okay. And me ringing that bell is to call everyone to go to the um, hondo, the big, the great building, the great hall, rather, to chant. So that's, you know, everything in the monastery is done with a bell. So, so that way – Communication is kept to a minimum in that way. So honestly, what that does is, you know, you hear I hear a bell and I start to smell rice, you know, or whatever. You get very Pavlovian in that. (laughs) Pretty funny, yeah.
1: (laughs) So after you hit this and you go into the Hondo, the meditation hall in the morning for zazen seated meditation, how long is the morning meditation?
0: So 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 like four to five is choka, and then. You go back to the zendo and chant just a little bit more, and then everyone runs to sanzen. So in the video, you see people running, and that's right after Choka. Okay. So and then that that morning lasts until seven, or it did when I was there. I think it may have shifted slightly, but so that's two hours of um, Zazen and sanzen with the Roshi.
1: Okay. So during the chanting something yep. that people who watch the footage will notice is the chanting. And yeah. this is seriously intense. Like I was taught a little bit, like the Heart Sutra and the Four um, Great Vows and chanting a little bit. And it's really, really hard. And the film clearly shows people who are like like, <gasps> like catching their breath during yeah. these chantings. So like, can you talk a little bit about the physicality of the chanting practice?
0: Yeah, I, I, I did write one blog post about that. Um, but you know, everything in the monastery is about, you know, working with our key, with our energy. Okay. And the chanting is the reason, partly the reason we get up and go chant is because we get all of our energy flowing through the chanting and everything with the Roshi starts with Sosokan. Sosokan is a, a breathing technique where you extend your breath fully and then you extend it a little further and of course at first everyone forces that but really it's more about focus and it's about getting into our bodies and letting them open up so so often with the chanting you know especially at first you know i had a lot of problems with the chanting you're there you know you're trying to you're trying to chant out but half of you is going in so, so a lot of the practice is about figuring out how to get your whole self moving in that one direction. So, um, you know that you see that with people in the, in the video, like they're working on that, they're figuring out how to get their their you know uh, their whole their whole energy going in one direction. Does that make sense?
1: Absolutely, it's it's really a sight to behold. And in order to actually understand how difficult it is, I think that somebody actually has to try and do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So during Zazen, whenever you're seated, you have your hands placed in a really certain way. So a lot of times it'll be like a mudra where like uh, w- one hand will be resting on top of the other, but then the thumbs will be pressed together in like, sort of like an egg shape. Yeah. And in the film, I see that a, the hand mudra in the film is now with the tips of the thumbs touching, like you see in some Zen photos. It's kind of like where you have the thumb inside of a fist and then you wrap your hand around the fist. So, like do you have like a seated meditation mudra that you prefer because um, I've seen it done a bunch of different ways?
0: Well, I think officially, you know, for the pictures, they're going to do this normal kind of with mudra with the th- the thumbs touching. But, you know, Rinzai's a little irreverent. To be honest, it's a little bit more, uh, you know. I, there's a little less OCD on everything being done exactly perfect. Mm. Um, uh, that's not. It's not bad that, that that's the way it is. And in, in, um, you know, Soto I think is a little more, little more OCD on everything being done exactly, you know, the way Dogan said it or whatever. But the Rinzai. Um, you know, it's a real physical practice. It's a real energetic practice. And a lot of us, you know, the Roshi would normally sit grabbing his thumb. You know, it's a little more like there's a little aspect, I think, where you can feel your, your tendon but just below your navel, you can feel that a little bit differently by grabbing your thumb. Um, and I personally like that better. I think if we're trying to do like this perfect mudra, I think people actually sometimes can't go as deep. And their Zazen, they can't let go as much if they're trying to do this perfect mudra.
1: Okay, cool. I like that. Um, I was always curious about that because I've seen it one way, like our mutual friend Mado Moore has it with the grabbing of the thumb in his book, and then I've seen people do it with the thumbs touching like in sort of like the egg shape, and I was always just curious if there was like a specific reason for that. So sorry for getting a little too nerdy and technical there.
0: No,
1: no. Um, Uh, So I want to talk a little bit about Sanzen, which you mentioned earlier and there is a really intense scene in the film where there's a student and teacher meeting, and the student screams, like, full volume in the face of the teacher, and then the teacher screams back and rings a bell, and then the student bows. So what is the purpose of this? What is this practice known as? Like, why is there this yelling between the teacher and the student, and what is it all for?
0: Well... Um, those two uh, Sanzen's that you see are um, the first one is actually um, he's actually doing these these additional questions after the mu koan, and then the second one is this traditional mu koan. And uh, you know, sanson is like this meeting of energetic kind of soup. Okay, and you are presenting your energetic state of mind. And the roshi is there with his state of mind, and it's a blending of those. It's a meeting of minds. Um, the mu khan is what you do. Actually, is the shout is an expression of an energetic overflowing. Mm. So, if done well, it's not force. So, if you're if you're really doing the mu, it's it's exploding out from this overflowing of energy. So. So people think it's some kind of, you know, that you're yelling. But really, if you're doing it well, it just is emerging from this energetic um, overflow.
1: Okay, interesting. Yeah. Um, so it's not like, so w- what else is like kind of like the purpose for anybody who doesn't know, like, of yeah, yeah. these meetings?
0: So so the, you're going in and you're trying to present your state of mind to the Roshi. Okay. And the, the Roshi's job is to, like show you where you're where you're off show you where your uh your state of mind is fuzzy or it's not sharp or um he he finds your gap and you are looking each time you go in and it's like you're in this duel okay and you want to show him you got it mm-hmm. okay and he his job is is to outdo you every time and beat you every time and and to show you oh you're wrong there you're off there you're uh you're missing it. So, okay.
1: So that, thinking thinking back on your sons and experiences, like what would you say is like the biggest things that you gain from doing a practice like sons and over a period of years like with one teacher?
0: I would say that the Roshi is this master of... Uh, he's like this blacksmith who's forging uh, his students to uh, open up to their true nature. And for me, I found... This deep level of relating and communicating energetically that uh, completely changed my, my life. And he was um, – so to the communication in Sanzen is there's a verbal aspect. Sometimes you're talking. But really there's this whole under-the-table energetic aspect. And that's the real teaching. And so you're getting transmitted this Buddha state of mind. And you have to learn how to receive that. You have to relearn, learn how to embody and let it uh, transform you and metamorphosize you. That's what Sanzen's about.
1: Cool. Okay, so, wh- so when you were there, you don't just ring the bell and chant and sit and do Sanzen. You also work. And you were kind of like a kitchen guy, right?
0: I did all the jobs.
1: Okay, cool. Yeah. um, yeah. There, um there's a guy that you probably know about uh, an author, a Rinzai monk shows on Jack Hobner. Yeah, yeah. Do you, have you read any of those books?
2: Yeah. Yeah. He's fantastic. I oh my him.
1: gosh. Those books yeah. are amazing. So he's got a scene <laughs> in Zen yeah. confidential where he's always like getting into fights with his kitchen staff and people in the monastery in California. So he's like getting into these huge, like oh, brawls God. in these, <laughs> in these kitchen scenes and they are the whole, most hilarious things ever. But you're, your environment seems like super quiet and peaceful in the film, but there's probably more to it than what we see in the film. I would imagine. So you're surrounded by people. What's like the social scene, like in a place like Sogenji? like, are you friends with the people in the film? Is there socializing? Are you not supposed to talk to each other? Like, how does that go?
0: Well, when I was there, there was some social stuff really going on. And, um, there's a whole brotherhood sisterhood thing um as a as a as a new person a koha you come and it's really helpful to have senpais there who are who've been there a little longer and they have really uh transformed through their through their practice um they they can really help a new person and so um there is a whole social aspect there i had great friends still great friends from that life um you're all kind of like these mavericky, kind of wild people who go there. You're there because you're some kind of rebel, and <laughs> um, but I would say that in the monastery, it's like this oven where everyone is cooking, and the heat is really high, and people are really intense. They're going through all their shit. You know, it all comes up, and. Um, so there is conflict after conflict. It is a place of conflict, and you know people think, "Oh, you're going go to go this monastery. It's going to be so relaxing, and everyone's going to be smiling the whole time." And really, everything in the monastery moves fast. Everything is intense, and the roshi is the most intense. So, so it's it, you know the, the 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 analogy of the you know you have these potatoes boiling in a pot. And everyone's all the skin gets boiled, you know, kind of rubbed off. That's yeah. so you think it's a sweet place, but it's really um, there's there can be violence. There, it's um, it's a very intense environment.
1: Did you ever punch anybody?
0: Uh, no, um, but, <laughs> but uh, there, I I was a a yeah, I was a problem for a couple of years for sure. You yeah. Know, uh, uh, you know, and, it, <laughs> you know, we're doing this energetic work, opening up your body. You emotions come big time. Yeah.
1: So,
0: you know, and, and part of the deal is that you just have to sit with it. You just have to be with it. And then part of that, it just transforms you. You become uh, tough and you've had to face it for hour upon hour and something changes. Hmm. Yeah. So,
1: so you said you're still friends with a lot of the folks that are in the film too?
0: yes very much so very awesome much
1: so.
0: you know it's like we we went through uh something very intense together so we, we you know if someone walked in the door right now i would just know they were they were a a, a so genji person because they'd have a a certain type of intensity a certain energetic uh flavor or call it a kyogai you know they'd have a certain uh feel to them that I, you'd oh you're a, you're a so genji person
1: yeah. So one yeah. of the surprises for me in the, uh, in the, in the documentary is like the demographic makeup. So you're in Japan, but the demographics seem like strikingly Western. So what yeah. was, how many, like, what was like the, the breakdown, like racial, gender, what was like the breakdown of like in the monastery?
0: Well, this is an experimental place. So, uh, and this is a place really set up for foreigners. Okay. So, uh this is not the traditional Sodo, which is um, uh, more – it's just Japanese people. You maybe have one person who's a foreigner. But so the, the, um, the Roshi's teacher, Yamada Mumon, uh, was – his vision uh, was – I think it was, yes. His vision was to create a place for Westerners, and he sent our Roshi there to um, Sogenji to train Westerners and – not just Westerners, but there are people from India – Mexico, Australia, all over Europe, America, obviously. Um, so, and men and women, I think, you know, honestly about half.
1: Cool. Yeah, half. And, you know. how, m- how many people live there? Like when, I, when, it, when it's full? When it's full, 50. Okay.
0: Yeah. So it's not it's not like we got a thousand people there. It's not like, you know, Joe shoes, you know what I mean? Yeah. But, um, yeah, about 50 for the tops usually. Yeah. Um, and But it goes down to, like, 20 sometimes.
1: Okay. Yeah. So you're doing all these things. You're working. You're sitting. You're chanting. You're doing sanzen. And then you get out of the monastery a little bit and into the community. So, like, I see some at various points in the film. I see members yeah. of the public in the yes. film. So what was the monastery's role in public life for the locals in Japan? Like, what services did you guys offer?
0: Well, uh, the Roshi would lead a, some, he would give talks and there would be, there was always some kind of festival going on or some kind of, uh, yeah, ceremony of, of, uh, of some kind. Um, and we would do, uh, Sunday Zazenkai, which is the community Zazen. So, uh, people would come and, uh, from the community and sit Zazen with us. And, um, but, uh, you know, I, I think we were um, this huge temple, and people would come for the New Year. People, it's 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 a big part of people's lives. I think um, I'm not sure how much of the of the of Sogenji is given to funerals and whatnot. I think in some ways the more smaller temples were that, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it's always some kind of festival.
1: So there's also, like, these, like, whenever the community is in there doing, like, Sunday, Sunday Zazenkai, you see these, like, 70-something <laughs> little old ladies, like, sitting or kneeling on the floor throughout, like, the whole film. Um, like, so would they only come on, like, one day of the week?
0: Well, um, yeah. I mean, this is a training environment, so it's kind of like you, they're not going into this oven every day, right. you know. So they're going for, for this certain time. there's a he would do this, uh, these, these little talks, Asahi culture, he would do these little talks. So there would be a group of very devoted, uh, you know, 70 year old women who would come and he would give a talk to and uh, it's their time and they kind of take over and they, you know, they get special time with the Roshi. And that's very important because the Roshi is very powerful. So they get to kind of soak that up a little. Um, But yeah, they're amazing. I mean, They're kneeling and all that. We should be able to do that, too, but we we just don't grow up doing it, you know?
1: Yeah. And so, like, whenever you're involved in the community, you you guys also would have, like, businesses, right? Like, I think I saw at one point in the film, like, I saw, like, you guys, like, packing seed packages or something. Like, how do you keep the lights on in a place like that um, in a modern, expensive society?
0: Well... You know, I think that actually what you saw may have been people just saving seeds from their own, uh, from our guard. Oh, okay. Yeah, honestly, I don't, I, there's no, there's zero business at Sogenji. Really? It's all internally funded. This is a huge machine for all Japanese. This is like, you know, this is like shops. you know, cathedral. This is, you know, this is, this is a huge temple within a bigger machine. So, huge f- funding from Japan.
1: Okay, cool. Um, yeah, because, like, whenever I think about, like, uh, like uh, I read, like, a book about the history of the San Francisco Zen Center, and they, like, had, like, like, a farm and a restaurant and, like, a bakery and everything, and they were having businesses left and right, and they were, like, renting out their monastery for, like, uh, summer, like, vacation and stuff. So, that's interesting that there's kind of, like, a little different approach to funding the whole thing in Japan.
0: Well... Um, this is a there's a there is a philosophy behind that, and that um, I think the, the ideal is that people if you have the ripeness of your practice that people will fund it. Mm-hmm. This is the idea, and so theoretically there shouldn't have to be a business because people will want to support that that organization if it if the essence is deep enough. So this is the idea in Japan is that to work is um, maybe a little it's not really recommended.
1: Okay. So then when you get out in the community a little bit, I saw some parts where you guys are walking through town and you're dressed differently inside the monastery versus when you're in town. So like there are these like rope shoes and these gigantic hats and like leggings that look like tights. So when someone is like in town, um, like, why are you dressed differently when you walk through town, and what happens? Like, why do you go out of the monastery into the town?
0: Um, well, that's called takuhatsu, and um, it's honestly for the community. So we actually go out in our ceremonial garb, okay? Ceremonial, like, pilgrimage garb. And uh, even people who are not ordained wear those clothes for takuhatsu, OK, so um, people who are just living there and they, they haven't taken the ordination vows, all that, they go to Takohatsu. And we go and it's honestly for the people to be able to support the monastery that – and they don't give that much. It's not like we get a bunch of money so, um, or rice. You know. So it's more that the community can offer something to um, – for their own practice. So we go for them, honestly.
1: Cool. And I know yeah. some people are wearing navy blue robes, some are wearing black when they're out on the walks. Like, um, is there any difference in the color of the robes that is important?
0: The the winter robes are the denim. Oh, the okay. Or the black. So, okay. Yeah. So in the winter, you wear these beautiful uh, denim, you know, robes, and the summer is this mesh sort of
1: plastic. Thing. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So, I know that you were ordained and I want yeah. to the last thing I want to talk about before we talk about your current businesses and your current life is your ordination. Um so your entire ordination is in the film, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, they they yeah, pretty much. Yeah.
1: I mean, yeah. that that is amazing that you are the one person who got yeah. their entire ordination in this film.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So it's, there's
1: so, there's like a long process that goes into it, so at the very beginning, you come out and you're wearing white in your ordination, and there's a right. person next to you who is with you in that ordination?
0: Oh, that's my very good friend uh Sogaku, who's a Portuguese guy. He's actually a teacher now in a different lineage in, in paris, okay, but yeah he's so he's already ordained <clears throat> so he was sort of my wingman, you know, nice, making sure I didn't mess up too much um. Which I'm very good at messing up. So, uh, yeah. So he he kind of knew knew it and knew knew the steps. So he helped me do, the choreography. You know, everything in Japan is about uh, in the monastery and whatnot. There's a choreography. There's a there's a ceremony for everything. So a lot of that whole ceremony is about is about um, just the the yeah this this whole ritual.
1: Okay, so then the roshi gives you a. Clothing, new clothing on a tray, and then you walk around with that. So, what's the deal with the clothing on the tray that's wrapped up?
0: Well, I think the white symbolizes the lay person. So okay. white, white, usually symbolizes lay people in Japan, in the monastery. So um, you know, laymen, you know, paying would would be wearing white and not black. So ordained. People would wear black, so I go back and I put on my black robe, and then I'm a different different person. I'm I'm not a lay person anymore. So that's it's it's a symbolizing me going from a lay person to an ordained person.
1: And then when you got that, the roshi shaved your head a little bit, and then gave yeah. you more clothes. So what were those steps? Yeah. So they gave me the kesa,
0: which is the Buddhist, you know, Buddhist robe. Uh, and that's the formal, that's the very formal, um, uh, long sheet that you wear. Um, <clears throat> has lots of meaning, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, so so he shaved that was like, you know, something I, 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 I'm i getting, but something I'm like shav- shaving off my delusions or, you know, final shit. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, right. So, uh, you know, it's a ritual.
1: Yeah. Okay, Cool. And then at the end, you received a really beautiful certificate, and I heard then the Roshi call you by the name Ichigen. So yeah. what does your ordained name mean?
0: Well, I had already had the name Ichigen, which means... But he gave me, actually gave me a second name there, and that was Tyre. So I, I have two names there, Tyre Ichigen. Uh, and Tyre was... A, a former roshi at the monastery, and um, I'm not sure why he gave that to me. People don't normally get an ordination name, but my name, Ichigin, I had had for a year or two before already. But yeah, Ichigen, um Yep, yeah, that's my name.
1: Cool. Um, was any of your friends and family able to come to the ordination?
0: I did have um, I did have a really good friend who had spent time with me at uh, the the little monastery here in the states. Um, he had come, um, my good friend Chris Lanning, and then his folks were there. Uh, and then I had some some friends who live in Japan who visited. My folks did not come. My family, uh, uh, for a lot of people, I
1: think it's a, it's uh,
0: their folks aren't completely supportive of their time in, in the monastery.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, do you think that Americans or Westerners should study Zen in Japan? Uh oh,
0: well, I think uh, I think if you if you have a what's called the great doubt, this is a this is a great uh, need uh, sort of your whole being needs to really discover you know this real truth. Uh, I think working with maybe the the best teacher uh, best flavor for you that works is is what you need to do. And I think that, you know, the Roshi is getting a little older now, but still the, the most sublime teacher I am aware of. So if, you know, everybody's got a little flavor that they, that works for them, you know. So I, I would not tell anyone that they should go train with the Roshi. If you're like me, who, you know, extremely intense, wanting someone who could take any kind of intensity I could offer and and be able to give me more that was the roshi and i ate it up soaked it up so if you're looking intense environment i would say you you might want to check that out if you're pretty psychologically stable Um, that said uh i i don't think everyone needs to go to a monastery i don't think that that's not for everyone and that's good you know um and if you want to stay in the states i i think uh i like that made more. I think he's doing some cool stuff over there. Um, I don't quite understand their schedule exactly, but I, I, I think he's uh, doing real Rinzai uh, training. And so I, I respect that. I... Why'd you leave? Well, I left because we came home and we started a family.
1: Oh, because you met your wife over there, right?
0: We did. And uh, we we left and we our karma changed and we came home and uh, we we had a whole life change. I was going to stay there for, uh, you know, probably 10 more years. And uh, and I was like the Roshi's uh, guy. You know, Mm -hmm. I was you know, I was one of the 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 starting lineup. You know, I was going to be a Roshi, you know. So um, then when our our karma kind of shifted uh, then we we came home and we uh we were going to try to figure out how to uh stay really involved and uh and then uh it didn't quite work out so we we left the scene and we uh we decided to you know move on and uh be our own people
1: and you you talked to me like we've been talking now a little bit offline for several weeks now and you mentioned me that the monastery is sort of like a breakout for you of sorts so how did you navigate this reorienting of yourself in society like with a normal like daily routine and like living in cities and coming back to the states and all that how did that reorienting happen for you
0: i think that uh you know the the, the training and the zazen it all gives you this internal compass you know and and so you have you have your own way of uh, working with this true nature and with uh, the universe. And and so for me, uh, I had to just creatively uh, work on uh, maintaining and working with that. You know, so so there's a whole term in, in Japanese then called kufu, and kufu means creative problem solving. Mm-hmm. And so, so for me, it's been this just wonderful uh, artistic kufu about how to figure out how to offer myself in the world in a, in a meaningful uh, way, you know, artistic way. So it's all tied into the training. So it's like our whole lives are still the training. We're still expressing that. We're still working with that. It's just in a slightly different venue.
1: So Corey Hess Body Therapy. It's- is yeah. like something that you do like for for a living, right? Yep. Yeah. Okay, so you offer several services uh in your body therapy profession called structural integration, source point therapy and craniosacral therapy. And these are things that I'm not super versed on. So first of all, what kind of is like the purpose of the business and then maybe you could describe a little bit about what these services do
0: yeah well um you know people come in with certain issues you know they come with sciatica or they come with uh you know issues or uh, headaches or or anything like that and uh the structural integration uh, before i went to japan i went through a whole uh the raw thing series and uh so structural integration was developed by ida Dr. Ida Rolf, and there are different schools of structural integration. One of them is Rolfing, which you may have heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, I went to a slightly different school. I went to the Soma Institute. But um, I was really impressed by uh, the, the whole structural integration mindset. It was pretty out of the box and dealing with uh, you know human potential and – um, what gravity was, and how to align ourselves with, uh, you know, gravity, and um, uh, yeah, this concept of a line, which felt very much like an energetic aspect of zazen. So, um, so, so that's how I got into structural integration. I came back looking for a medium to communicate with people. I felt like I had learned from the Roshi this very profound way of relating and communicating and being sort of um, uh, not intimate in a sexual way, but just intimate with uh, uh, people. Mm-hmm. And so I was looking for a way to express myself. And, and so that's what I chose. Um, cranial central is very, um, very similar to Zazen in a lot of ways for me. It's about, uh, you're sort of like a tuning fork. You're, you're I sort of do zazen with people and um, uh, sort working with energy fields and alignment and allowing the system to uh, self-organize. This is all very much very similar to Zazen. Uh, the so- source point was developed by a Rolfer who is a, a, a really high- level Kaplo Roshi student, and uh, it's sort of like energetic Rolfing mm-hmm. So, so that's been like a whole other language for me to uh, figure out how to express myself after um, after the training. So there, there's been a pretty cool marriage for me between uh, you know zazen, the training, koan work, and source point. It's all sort of in this. Uh, it's all very similar to me.
1: So this is kind of like a way to like bring the energy work that you were talking about earlier, kind of out off the cushion, out of the monastery, and sort of into the world, right?
0: Yeah, you know, um, as as Zen people, the whole life there is about saving, you know, all beings, right? So we're sitting for at first we're sitting for ourselves, you know, we're trying to just, you know, get ourselves together. And then we have certain experiences, different breakthroughs, Kensho, Satori, all these things, they, they happen. And you know, then it's really about how do we offer ourselves to the world. And uh, for me, uh, I was looking for a way to offer myself uh, to society. And you know, I'm still working on that. The blog is very much about that. How can I uh, creatively uh, help people to uh, open up to their potential? and open up to something uh, deep and beautiful they they don't know exists. So, yeah.
1: How has the blog called Zen Embodiment, how has the blog helped you process lessons and uh, memories from the monastery as you go about your life in, like, the world as a parent and a spouse and as a professional? Yeah,
0: yeah. You know, it's I, I really believe in art, actually. I really believe that, uh, you know, talking again about this internal compass, you know, I feel like the Zazen gave me this, uh, this real access to this, this truth and a way to interact with it cellularly. And uh, I feel like, in a way, the art is very similar to that. It's like the more I try to uh, express something that's true, the more i have to engage with this internal compass and the more true the, that then the art becomes so it's a way to kind of check myself and explore and uh, how to really relate to people and how to uh, help people that's that's what i'm trying to do
1: nice and you told me via email there's a quote in one of your emails that i loved it said many monastics have a hard time integrating their training into a good harmonious life I write my blog to show that it really is possible. So it's almost kind of to me like you are like the equivalent of like a university professor in the ivory tower, you know, and some of those folks have a really, really hard time communicating their expertise to people who don't have their training in physics or chemistry or animal sciences or whatever. And it seems like you do. It seems like you have a good ability to bring the sort of ivory tower phenomenon to ordinary language that people can get.
0: Boy, I'm working on it. Yeah. I really, I really, uh, I really feel, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm going to do it. I'm figuring out how to do it, you know? And I, I feel like it's very important to demystify some of this. Um, The blog is about – the blog is for for a few different people. It's for people who are just starting out. Some of the blog posts are about how can we just engage with our process? How can we really start to get involved in that and know there is a process? And and then that's also for very serious people. Some of my monk friends in the monastery read it, and it's my way to be a senpai to them and to help them to say, you can break through. You can really do this. You can transform. You can – know metamorphosize through this work and then it's also you know for some of my buddies who are out and they're again trying to figure out how to um you know bring it all into their lives how how can we do that and and the blog is again it's for me it's my own way of exploring that and trying to express something real and true and um so I write it for myself and I write it for um all those other people too so um
1: yeah how does uh, so I loved your entry one of the, one of them in particular that I was thinking about is Zen dad. Yeah.
2: How
1: how as a so I have a daughter too. So how does your Zen practice and the training that you have undergone how does that influence your parenting?
0: Well, I I think they they very easily uh, can not uh, realize or or they really—they're connected with their true nature. I think uh, so. I think trying to let that uh, really thrive and flourish within them. So I think we're—we're we're trying to help that to—to um, to just naturally exist. Um, I—that's—that's uh, that's what we're trying to do as parents: is let their spirits really kind of soar. That's our—that's our hope. Is I think we—we we went to do a lot of this training, I think to, uh, you know, kind of shake off a bunch of filters that we had built upon ourselves. You know, Zen monk is, is a person that's, uh, you know, they're not perfect. They're not, they're not doing anything perfect, but their, their filter is very, it's, they don't have filter so much. So they're, they're right there. They're fresh. And and I think the kids have this fresh state of mind and, so we're, we're just trying to help that to flourish, try not to get in the way too much. You know, that's, that's what we're trying to do.
1: Nice. Well, Corey Hess, author, yes, former Zen monk, body therapist. Um, tell everybody who's listening like, where they can find all of your writing and your uh, professional endeavors on the interwebs.
0: Well, my business site is Corey Hess Body Therapy dot com and uh, my blog is actually on there as well but my the more well known blog is the zenembodiment dot com and uh, yeah, yeah that's that's where it is um, I'm out on Whidbey Island and uh, north of Seattle English Sea um, yeah
1: and yeah, and uh, you always invite for comments on all of your website postings as well don't you
0: Yes, I'd, lo- I'd love to hear comments. I'd love to uh, be able to be helpful in any way that people have. I often get questions from people from, you know, people from Poland are writing me about different energetic uh, problems they're having or issues or questions about Zazen, or and I, I really enjoy that. That's that's really fun, especially um, some of these, these issues that nobody seems to have a, a, a way to talk about. You know, a lot of us— zen people we we've been through a lot of that sitting on the cushion for all those hours you know we we we've banged our head in well enough and, and we kind of just stopped you know and so we've been through a lot of these issues so I'm, I'm happy to hear any uh any questions or comments i love getting comments like oh that that really helped me you know i'm not getting paid for my blog so it's it's very nice to hear oh that was helpful
1: Nice. Well, Corey Hess, thank you so much for taking the time to uh talk to me about your monastery experience and all of your professional work today. It's been a real pleasure.
0: Oh, thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure for me too. Thank you.
1: As mentioned in the introduction, here is the full English version of the Heart Sutra chanted by Corey Hess.
2: Ba, prasna, barmi, dai, dara, sutra. Aboloti kethvara When practicing deeply, the prajna para mutual perceive that all five khandhas in their own being are empty and will save from all suffering. All chari put form does not differ from emptiness. Emptiness does not differ from form. That which is form is emptiness, that which is emptiness, form the same is true of feelings, perceptions, impulses, consciousness. O Sharifu, all timers are marked with emptiness, they are without birth or death are not tainted, nor pure, do not increase, nor decrease. Therefore it there's no form, no feelings, no perceptions, no impulses, no consciousness, no eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind. No colour, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch, no object of mind, no world of eyes, through to no world of mind consciousness, no ignorance and also no extinction of it, through to no age and death and also no extinction of no suffering, no origination, no stopping, no bad, no cognition, also no attainment with nothing to attain. The bodhisattvas depend on prasna-polamita, and their mind is no hindrance without any hindrance, no music, stands. far apart from every deluded view, they dwell in nirvana in the three worlds of Buddhas, depend on prasna be it I and the others completely perfect enlightenment, therefore, no. The Prajnaparamita is the great transcendent mantra, is the great bright mantra, is the utmost mantra, is the supreme mantra, which is able to relieve all suffering and is true now false. So proclaim the Prajnaparamita mantra. Proclaim the mantra that says, Yate, Yate, Para Yate, para sang, yate
1: Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Streibig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas@outlook.com.